Uh, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, Drew is off today, so you can think of us as the second string. I'm not really. Uh, I, I have a, if you see me kind of messing with this thing, uh, it's because it's a little weird for me to have this on, uh, but I'm a man under authority and I was told, you must wear the wireless mic. Uh, as opposed to wearing or uh, using the uh, the standalone mic, so I felt the need to maybe go get some leather pants on because I feel like Britney Spears with one of these things. But uh, uh, I I only have these khakis on, so they'll have to suffice. Uh, we are in the fourth week of a series on the Book of Nehemiah. Uh, the series is called "The City Within the City," and there's an insert in your worship folder. Uh, on one side is the passage for today, which is Nehemiah 5, uh, verses 1 to 19. Uh, and on the back is the sermon outline. Uh, but what we've been doing in this series is looking at what does it look like for us as God's people to embody a different mode of living, a different way of life in the midst of the city of Winter Haven. What does it look like for us to be the city of God inside the city of man. And so, if you haven't been here, I do want to review with you what we've done the last three weeks. Uh, the first week we looked at what does it mean to engage brokenness? What does it mean to look on the brokenness of our city and to be sad as a result of that? And then, uh, what happens beyond that? We move out uh, in action from there. What kind of, what kind of impact does looking at brokenness have on us? And we looked at Jesus who was broken as He entered Jerusalem. The next week, we took a look at what it means to live vocationally in light of Nehemiah who left a place of privilege and honor as a cupbearer to the king and went to Jerusalem amongst the brokenness, amongst the dirtiness, amongst the ruin of the city and sought to engage and heal that brokenness. And we saw how Jesus left the place of honor and glory to come to earth uh, and take on the role of a servant as well. And last week, we looked at opposition. What does it look like that when we engage in brokenness, we're going to uh, experience opposition? What's that feel like? Does it mean God doesn't love us if we engage opposition? No. Does it mean God, not, God isn't for us? No. In fact, we're encouraged and pointed to Jesus again that in Him, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? This week in chapter 5, we're really going to take a look at what an illustration of the hard work ahead of us is. So as a result of the opposition that we will face, uh, there will be many forms of opposition. There are many ways in which sin has come to break our world. And we see one example of that here in Nehemiah 5. So let me read, beginning uh, in verse 1. Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to open to Nehemiah, uh, you can. If not, it's on the screen behind me or on the insert in your bulletin. And I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 19. So hear the word of the Lord. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, 
our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as are their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But even you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the, 20, to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Mm. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Um, three questions that we're going to look at this morning, and this is very similar to the, the kinds of questions in the way that you've heard Drew preaching the last few weeks. Um, I am obviously different from him because I'm a different person, uh, but we are very influenced by the same men, the same authors, the same uh, modes of thinking. And so you will hear us say very similar things. I like to say we're both influenced by the gospel. Uh, and so we both want to preach the gospel faithfully, uh, boldly and humbly every week. So number one, what is injustice? What does it look like? And I have the first point, injustice illustrated. Uh, number two, uh, what should our response be to it? And number three, how will we respond that way? Okay, so what is it? Uh, what should our response be and how will we respond to it? First, what does it look like? If you look at verses one through five, they describe a situation that 
results from the work to be done on the wall. Remember, the, the, the work to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem was substantial. I mean, quite a bit to do here. Okay, And the fact is, Nehemiah had asked everybody to move into Jerusalem or the area very near Jerusalem and commit to staying there and being there. Uh, but what you have in verses 1-5 to is a complaint by the poorer Jews against the wealthier Jews. Because here's the thing. The Canaanite peoples who lived in the land when Israel entered it had a system of land ownership where you had kings and lords and nobles who owned all the land. And if you were a peasant or poorer or couldn't afford land, basically everyone else, so this was an elite small group of people, everyone else would work off the land and pay taxes to the king or to the noble uh, to be able to work on that land and eat off that land. Well, <clears throat> The Lord gave Israel a different system. Everyone was to be given enough land for their needs according to the size of their clan. This way, everyone's needs were met. You see this in uh, the book of Numbers, in the book of Joshua, when, they, uh, when the writers talk about how the land was distributed. Each according to his clan. Each according to their own family. The point was, everybody had enough. Not what they wanted, but what they needed. After all, the earth is the Lord's. It's not a king or a noble's. But Israel had a very short memory. So if you look at verses 1-5, to there are three groups of people who are being oppressed or exploited. Number one, families who owned no land and were going hungry as a result of that. Number two, you have families who owned land but needed to use it as collateral for loans in order to get grain. And then three, you had families who owned land, but they couldn't afford the king's tax on it. Okay? So three groups of people. And as a result of that, debt was forcing most of them to sell their children into slavery so that they could maintain a livelihood. They were selling their own children into slavery. Now, if you don't think this is going on in the world today, uh, you're living under a rock. Because there are many slaves, child slaves, adult slaves in the world today. So it continues. This brokenness, this sin continues even today. Injustice and oppression are taking place in these verses on four fronts. Number one, famine. Number two, you have people mortgaging their stuff so that they can afford to eat. You have people burdened, overburdened by taxation of the king. And then you have child slavery. So rather than caring for one another and providing for one another's needs, it appears that the haves of Israel had forgotten that the have-nots existed. It seems that they were more influenced by the surrounding Canaanite culture than God's Word. They had forgotten God's Word. They had forgotten what God had told them. And it's so easy for us in America. I want to put a quote up for you on the screen this is by Dorothy Day. She founded a, a thing called the Catholic Worker Movement. Some of you may have heard of her. She says, we must talk about poverty, and I would add injustice, because people insulated by their own comfort lose sight of it. It's so easy for us to insulate ourselves into the, 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 the microcosm of our own comfort so we never have to engage. We never have to see. We never have to touch the brokenness and injustice that is around us. And Drew talked about this the first week. If we are going to be a city within a city, we must be a people who willingly 
and lovingly and boldly engage the brokenness around us. Um, Where do you place yourself to see injustice? Living in isolation is, is... is easy, as I've said. It's, it's not hard for us to do. It is a challenge to get out of that. Uh, you, you, you live so that you don't have to connect with those in need or with those who are being oppressed. But notice Nehemiah. Notice Nehemiah. Verse 1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people, and, they, and then he records their words. He is right there because he is knee-deep in the ugliness of the work. He is right there engaging the brokenness of the city so the outcry comes to him. He, he, he's, he's right there. He's naturally there. And you and I, if we're not naturally there, if we're not knee-deep in the brokenness, we will not hear it. But I want you to listen to this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this, this is our God. Our God is a God who does this very thing. Listen to Exodus 3. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land. Verse 9 of Exodus 3, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to Me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And now listen to Matthew 9. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds, He he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is our God. This is the God of the Bible. He sees. He moves in because of compassion and He takes action. He does it over and over and over again. And if you want to catch a theme in the Gospels, just... Go through the Gospels and start circling the word Saul after Jesus' name. You'll see it over and over and over again. It's there all the time. So you place yourself to see it by engaging or getting knee-deep in the the work, into the dirtiness of it. But why does it occur? And we've already touched on some of this, but I want to point to two major things as to why injustice occurs. By the way, what is injustice? It's really a result of one who is advantaged, taking advantage, one who has more, taking advantage of one who has less. So why does it occur? Number one, pride. My prosperity and my survival are more important than anyone else's. And so, I, I, you know, I, I'm looking out for number one. If life is all about me, if I'm the only thing that matters, and, and my, my world is the only thing that matters, then that's going to result in me, maybe not purposefully, maybe not intentionally, maybe unintentionally. And this is where it gets really nasty. Whether I'm intentionally or unintentionally oppressing or contributing to the injustice of others, it ultimately flows from the pride that is in my heart and the self-centeredness that is in my heart. Number two, it occurs because of fear. If I don't fight tooth and nail to preserve myself and my way of life, Who's going to? And as a result of that fear, greed follows because I've got to have it. I've got to provide because I'm the only one looking out for myself. And then our obsession as a result of greed becomes things, materials, possessions, stuff. 
and we get so impatient that we pull out this piece of plastic so that we don't have to pay for it right then. But everybody knows those companies don't forget to send you the bill. I wish they did. If I was good with computers, I'd install a virus or something so I wouldn't have to pay my credit card bill. But they don't forget. And as a result of that debt, we are undone. Watch the news. Read the newspaper. So pride and fear are the major contributors really to injustice and why it takes place and how you and I are involved in it. But I want to go from there to ask the question, what should our response be? What is injustice? What should our response be? And I I just thought of this question. Reading verses 1-5, to look at verse 6. The very first thing verse 6 says, and every translation of the Bible that you read will say the very same thing about Nehemiah's response. I was very angry. Does reading verses 1-5 to make you very angry? If not... Please check your heart. Please, please search it out. And, and why does this not make me angry? I asked this question to several people. Took a poll. It's election season. Anyway, you know, take a poll. What makes you angry? So I got answers like this. Politics. Okay. Me too. Amen, brother. <clears throat> I got a, a, another answer. Deceitful people. I got another answer. Turnovers. And I said, no, no, be be serious. And he was like, yeah, turnovers. I hate it when Florida State turns the ball over. Uh, But then, uh, after prodding him, uh, this friend said, um, when people judge based on uh, a a misinterpretation of, of your character and they judge you as a result of that, I had answers like, injustice makes me angry. I had answers like, annoying people make me angry. Uh, and I had an answer like when the strong take advantage of the weak. And I got through all that, and, and I introduced all of those answers, and I, I'll tell you what my answer is. What makes me really hopping mad is when people who are in front of me in their vehicles don't drive the way I want them to drive. Especially on the interstate, or even on First Street. Why aren't you going? The light is green. It's the pedal on the right. I just, and Jamie will tell you, my wife will tell you, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's outside of the car. He's nice and relaxed and easygoing. He gets in the car. He turns into a monster. That's what makes me really angry. It is pretty sad that that's what makes me angry. But Nehemiah gets very angry here as a result of the injustice that is being done. And so I want you to notice three things that he does, and we're going to go through them. Number one, he confronts the people. Verses 7-9, to notice what he does here. He says, I was very angry, and I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. He calls together an assembly and he confronts the wealthy Jews alongside their poorer brothers and sisters. So everybody is, is together, and everybody is standing there, and he is calling them to account. He is confronting them in their sin. But notice, 
that his emotional response doesn't result in thoughtlessness. It results in thoughtfulness. He says, I took counsel with myself. He started to think it over. And as you and I begin to engage and see the needs around us in terms of the brokenness and injustice we come in contact with, it doesn't mean we fly off the hip and decide to do something about it. We need to think. Come up with a, with a strategy. Here's where Drew's Excel spreadsheets are, are good. Think through it. That's what Nehemiah does. And as a result, he confronts, calls together this assembly. But what, what is he so angry about? Look at verse 9. I want you to hone in on verse 9. This is what he gets so angry about. He says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? What is really driving Nehemiah's anger is that their conduct doesn't match their confession. These are the people of God. How in the world can they be treating each other like this? He is ashamed of their witness to the nations around them because if they act like this, how are they any different from the Canaanites? They look just like Canaanites. They don't look like God's people. He is exposing their hypocrisy. And I want to read to you a portion of Leviticus chapter 25 because this is what I think is in the back of Nehemiah's mind as he is confronting them. Leviticus 25, verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. Very important. He shall be with you as a hired servant or as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Do you hear a theme there? God is very purposeful as he warns the people, as he tells the people, this is how you are to treat each other. Not the way the Canaanites treat one another. Not as the surrounding culture, to bring it to 2008, would treat each other. But to treat each other and those living among you as sojourners or strangers differently as well. Because the problem was this. Israel wasn't living out of their identity as former slaves who had been freed by the gracious act of another on their behalf. That somebody, please tell me if you think, if it is your opinion that the Israelites rescued themselves out of Egypt, raise your hand. Exactly. They did nothing. God rescued them. And now they were enslaving each other because they had forgotten their identity. That's the key. So he confronts them and next he confesses. And this is great. goes back to chapter 1. I'm reminded of chapter 1 reading this. Nehemiah moves on to confess his own sin. Remember, remember uh, week 1 where Drew said, you know, if you don't drive around and say, it, this is my fault, then you, 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 you just don't get it. 
Nehemiah once again owns his own sin as a member of the community of Israel. And he says, this is what's been going on. Moreover, I and my brothers, verse 10, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest and so forth. So he calls them to repent and he lays out his economic recovery plan. This would not get you elected in 2008. You ready? Any land seized either as collateral or because debtors couldn't repay what was owed is to be returned unconditionally. He's calling the people to remember who they are as the people of God, as Israel, and whose they are, the Lord's. So he confronts them, he confesses corporately with them, and then he commits. And if you look at verses 14 through 18, you will see the last thing Nehemiah does in response to the situation is he takes action. Once again, he looks and he sees the problem. His heart is overwhelmed with passion, in this case anger, as a result, compassion for those who are suffering, and then he commits. He commits to use his position of influence to be a blessing to the people rather than oppress them. He could have taxed the people for his food allowance. You see that there in verse 14. He says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor for 12 years. He's governor and he doesn't take the food allowance. Because if you were governor of a Persian satrapy or county, okay, it'd be like being governor of Polk County. You could tax not only from the King Artaxerxes, which was sort of like a federal tax, but you could impose a local tax so that you could eat as the governor. Nehemiah says, I didn't do that. He said, in fact, the governors before me, verse 15, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so. Here it is again. Because of the fear of God. So, he does not take his food allowance. And if you look at his generosity, it is just amazing. Because if you were to add up all the stuff that's being prepared on a daily uh, uh, basis at his expense in verse 18, we're talking big bucks. Big, lots of cabbage, as Lyle Caswell says. Lots of money. Because for Nehemiah, and this is the next quote that will be on the screen behind me, knowing God is not a matter of mere inner spirituality, but a matter of transformation of values and resulting practical commitment. Oh, not that one. Oh, there we go. Second string. I did not say that. Chris Wright said that. The theologian from the United Kingdom. For Nehemiah, it was not just mere inner spirituality. Wow, I've got this great relationship with God and I obey Him and I do all the right stuff. But it worked itself out because his values got transformed as he became more and more enthralled with God and God's Word. And then a resulting practical commitment. And it must be the same for us. But how will we get there? Third and final question. How will we respond in the way that Nehemiah responded? How can we adequately respond to and battle injustice in our city and world? Okay, here's the last point I want to make to you. We, we must begin with this statement. To root out injustice, we must be rooted in the Gospel. Okay? To root out injustice, 
we must be rooted in the Gospel. Look at verse 13. I skipped it, uh, but I want to go back to it. Nehemiah does something very strange here. In the ancient Near East, people would keep personal items in the folds or the, the pockets of their robes. So it, it, it's kind of like you know your pockets. What, what kinds of things do you keep in your pockets? Men, this has more impact on you than it does ladies. But ladies, say you have pockets in your pants and you put stuff in there. Okay, Keys, cell phone, wallet, change. If you are like me, you may not leave home without... This is far more valuable than the American Express card. Okay, My chapstick. Must have it. So what kinds of things do you keep in your pockets? In the ancient Near East, they had folds in their, in their garment or in their robe. And that's where they would keep their stuff. Now what Nehemiah does here is as an illustration of the curse that would result from not doing what the people had promised, what he called the people to, he takes his robe and he literally just does this and everything falls out. He empties his pockets. He shakes them out. And he says, may he who does not keep his promise made here be shaken out and emptied just like my pockets. Now, I don't know about you, but that would have scared the bejesus out of me if I'd have been sitting there watching that. Because here's the man of God, here's the governor, and he's just called us to repent, and now he goes on and shakes everything out of his garment and says, listen here, if you don't obey, if you don't do this, I'm calling down right now a curse and may you be shaken out. Ooh, I'm scared. I would have been scared. And here's the bad news. You and I can't keep the law of God. You and I can't keep our promise to be generous and loving and just in all of our relationships. You and I have broken God's commands and deserve His wrath and curse. We should be scared. Because what's rightly due us is being shaken out. But one has come. This is the good news. This is the great news. One has come, Jesus Christ, who never broke God's commands and was perfectly obedient to God's law. He treated everyone justly with love and generosity. But because of our rebellion and sin, Jesus was emptied and shaken out, hung on a cross, so that all who believe in Him would be filled. He who had everything became one who had nothing, so that we who were nothing and deserved nothing but death might gain everything and be filled with everything He had. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though He was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that through His poverty, we might become rich. If we are going to battle the injustices in our city and world, we must be grounding ourselves in that Gospel. Jesus was the one who was emptied. He gave everything He had so that we who were empty might be filled with all of Him. And if all, of I, if all I do here is stop, now, I want you to go out and live like Nehemiah. I want you to go be generous. Have at it. There's a whole city out there. Go for it. Try really hard. It's going to be really tough. But I think you can do it. If I did that, then I'd be directing you to religion. I'd be directing you to moralism. Not the Gospel. The Gospel tells us that we can't, but Jesus did. And only as we fill our minds and our hearts with Him and the wonder of His work 
and he becomes more and more beautiful, it's only then that we will begin to be different. So my last question here is, how will the Gospel change us? Well, without the Gospel, we will be a people who treat one another and others around us like verses 1-5. to We will take advantage of one another. We will exploit and oppress those weaker than us. But the Gospel would transform us into a people who are generous and a people who do justice by demolishing those two things I mentioned earlier. Pride and fear. My pride is demolished by the Gospel because Jesus had to be emptied. He had to be shaken out from me. The cross is the indictment of my rebellion against God. So what a humility that creates. Now, the survival and just treatment of others matters more to me than my own. Jesus worked for my survival by losing His. So Gospel humility becomes born out of my heart. And the Gospel transforms us by demolishing our fear. If I am built in Jesus and I have everything, if Jesus has promised to meet my needs, and He has, then I no longer have to fight tooth and nail to preserve me and my way of life. Anxiety and worry are diminished in a heart that is secured by the Gospel. And so, Gospel security becomes born in my heart. And so out of this humility and security will flow radical justice and generosity. Brothers and sisters, we become people who take upon ourselves and own the cause of those who are weak in their own defense because that's what Jesus did for us. We become people who willingly and cheerfully empty our pockets for those who need to be filled spiritually, physically, emotionally, because Jesus emptied His pockets so that you and I might be filled. Let's pray to our great Savior. Lord Jesus, we, we stand in awe that You who had everything would give all that You had and become nothing so that we who were everything or who had nothing might gain everything. We thank You for giving of Yourself willingly and freely that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. And we pray that You would make us, by Your Spirit, a people who become generous because You have been generous to us and just because what we have deserved we have not gotten in You. Thank You for being shaken out and emptied so that we might be filled. And may we now go from here empowered to shake ourselves out and empty ourselves on behalf of those who are suffering and the victims of injustice. For Your glory and for Your name's sake, in this city and world we pray. Amen. Uh, the promise of this benediction is given to all those whose hope is in Christ because Jesus was emptied and shaken out so that you and I might be filled with this promise with a good word, a benediction spoken over us. So receive it now as you go, uh, empowered in the mission Christ has called us to do. <clears throat> May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in His peace.